Welcome to The Garret. I'm Lucy Trelaw. The Garret, a podcast by writers, for writers, about writing. Here's your host, Astrid Edwards. Lucy, welcome to The Garret. Now, first up, congratulations on your third novel, Days of Innocence and Wonder. We will be talking about that today. But before we go there, I'd like to briefly revisit your first two novels, Salt Creek from 2015, which was historical fiction, and Wolf Island from 2019, which was near future speculative fiction. Both were highly awarded. From the vantage point of when we are talking now in 2023, how do you look back on those first novels? Oh, gosh, that's such an interesting question. Uh, When I think about Salt Creek, it feels a little bit like a starter novel to me. It was the second novel I'd written. I think I I was looking for a subject that I felt some connection to, I suppose, and that's why I, that's why I started writing that. I had a very strong family history with the region I was writing about and a few little fragments of stories and uh, wanted to kind of explore some of the things that rose from that, including the kind of absences, the erasures that there were in my family stories. And so it was just something that I started and I'd had an offer from a publisher on the basis of a very short sample and I thought, you don't turn that kind of thing down, that's the thing I'm going with. And um, so I had a contract and they said, could you please get that done by the end of the year? And I kind of blanched um, but said, sure, even though my first book had taken about five years um, and and settled to it. And I I really enjoyed it. It was a fantastic experience writing that novel, the whole process of editing it. Um, But I very much didn't want to um, replicate that experience, not the the kind of pleasures of it, but going into that material again. And there would have been plenty of room for writing a sequel. I think the publisher would have been pretty happy with that. Um, But I said I I don't really want to get locked into writing historical fiction, so I feel as if I maybe need to break out now. And they said, very good idea, (laughs) because after two it gets quite problematic Um, and I just leapt out of it and it was a really great pleasure to start writing uh, in a kind of contemporary world as that world was of Wolf Island when I started writing it but I started writing just before Trump was elected and was going went on a research trip to the states about three days after he was elected and landed with all these completely freaked out Americans saying what are we going to do and and it completely changed everything about that book and my approach and because I had this kind of political aspect to it that I was thinking about, I, I desperately wanted to include a little bit of the, a little bit of that. But the only way I could think of having transgressive young people would be if they were trying to kill President Trump. And I just thought that is not going to go over very well if I have these murderous teenagers. So I moved it into this speculative future. That was it was this kind of problem of how to overcome the black hole that was Trump just sucking everything into it. The black hole of Trump never seems to go away, Lucy. But about that novel, Wolf Island, it it has always stayed with me. And I mean this as a compliment, but the feel of the house, uh, the place, the horrible future that you give us that honestly feels like we could be living it at any point. It feels so close. I can see myself living it. It just left such a mark on my psyche. Sorry. I know there's nothing for you to say say for that, but I mean, you know, for anyone listening, I I, I do think Wolf Island is uh, is a book that you absolutely should pick up. Uh, but of course, also, um, 
let's talk about your latest work, Mm. Days of Innocence and Wonder. It is published at the end of 2023 Mm. and it's, it's contemporary fiction. It's set very much in the present. It's set in Australia and we do have flashbacks to, you know, about 18 years ago. But in the way some of your previous work has done this, it is very much touching on the large debates and topics of our time. You know, in some of the scenes, Ukraine war is playing out on the television sets. Some of it is set during the Melbourne lockdowns, which at once feels an eternity ago and just yesterday. I'd like to talk about why the decision to set it so fully in the now in Australia. I've always been um, really struck by the documentary possibilities of novels and I've read quite a few people saying what was going on during the Spanish flu. There's no fiction that comes out of that. What a shame that is. And and although, I mean, lockdowns were dreadful and I'm terribly introverted and I still found them pretty claustrophobic, I, I just thought that the possibilities of exploring some of that experience, of giving it some kind of shape, of making use of that psychological atmosphere that was part of such a big part of the lockdowns, uh, could be interesting and revelatory of this time and of a particular character and her trauma that I was exploring. Um, so I think I was I was looking for those things, but but partly it was just the fascination of documenting what I was. Um, around all the time. Uh, I found that really fascinating. Lucy, I think it might be time to introduce the plot with, of course, no spoilers, Mm. for Days of Innocence and Wonder. Okay. Days of Innocence and Wonder is about a young woman called Till who has lived all of her life with the trauma of the memory of the loss of a childhood friend who was kidnapped from kindergarten and presumed killed. And the long aftermath of that, the shadow that she lives inside and that she's always attempting to walk out of. And she finds herself fleeing to South Australia at the end of lockdowns and makes a home for herself in a near ghost town. And uh, But this trouble kind of chases her there as well. And so it's what she does um, in response to those things, the, the events of her life, how she deals with it and how she tries to uh, achieve a kind of wholeness, I suppose, despite despite that trauma. Till is a remarkable character, fully formed on the page, as if she could almost walk into the local pub or, you know, walk down the main street of some small regional town. Where did you find Till's voice? And I guess in terms of the technique that we're talking about here, Till is the main character, but not the narrative voice, not the voice of the narrator that the reader is most often engaging with. Yeah, I think this was the the big um, stopping point for me when I was starting to write this book. I was completely stalled with it. My first two novels were written in first person. I really wanted to write a close third person novel. I just thought, push yourself, push yourself. It was just kind of, I don't even know why, but I this is what I did. But I could not write it without thinking, who are you, third-person narrator, perving around in this book, you voyeuristic, who are you? I was really terribly um, stalled by it. I mean, I understand the narrative voice. I understand that people have been doing it for centuries, but I couldn't do it in this book with this character. I just thought Till is a very private person. She, She doesn't want people watching her. So then I had this idea of splitting off this narrative voice and making them someone else who's 
intimately acquainted with Till and who's watching on. And as soon as I did that, Till opened up. Everything about her opened up and it became possible to write her. And I, I often have this feeling with writing, you're blundering around in a way trying to work out what's going on. And if you've stalled, then there is nothing to do but try something else. And if you can keep going after you've changed something, if the writing can proceed, then that's what you go with because that's what the, the aim is, is to kind of keep pursuing this book that you're, that you're looking at. Yeah, so it was um, her character just popped out as soon as I as soon as I changed the way I th- saw this n- narrative voice. Um, she'd been working away on her own, I'd say. <laughs> is there an official name for what you did with that voice? I had in mind um, The Great Gatsby, that kind of semi-invisible narrative voice, just kind of watching everything, knowing what was going on. I, yeah, I don't know what it's called, but, yeah, I took it. <laughs> <laughs> For those listening, many people are are writers working on their own stories, whether fiction or nonfiction, and obviously many writers get stalled or stopped or don't quite know how to proceed. I'd like to kind of go back and interrogate a little bit more what you were just saying, how you did stall and you, you know, the traditional third person narrator wasn't really uh, working for you in the way that you needed it to for this character. And I guess in the way this character needed it to work. What else did you try or how how do you experiment to find what might work? Well, I suppose looking back, I even tried going back to a first-person voice as if Till were telling the whole story. But because the story is about trauma, that became problematic for me in the problem of how to conceal information and to reveal it when she's the one telling it. I could have gone down the unreliable narrator line, which uh, I tried a little bit and it it felt very uh, dishonest somehow. I I just couldn't make it work. So that that attempt didn't work. Um, The other thing I tried was I forced myself along for several thousand words in the idea of just a straight third-person narration and it was terribly stiff and self-conscious and I couldn't, I couldn't, stop it somehow even though I could identify what the problem was I I just couldn't get that particular voice to work you know I kept on stumbling along and I'd write these fragmentary bits and look at them and think that really is a disaster even two days later that's terrible I can't write I've never been able to write and no one's told me before it's all you know the end of the world and then then I came up with this idea and you know it's still extremely hard work, but it was possible. So I think it was those two basic things that I really pushed and failed at. No one's ever going to tell you you're not a good writer, Lucy, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will anyway. <laughs> you mentioned that this book deals with trauma. It, it very much does. It's also about violence against women and violence against children. And on a slightly happier less traumatic note. It is about small regional towns and community and yes, how sometimes they fall apart, but also how they can experience, you know, a new lease on life. When you are writing a story that is so heavily character driven, you know, through the character of Till, how conscious are you of really delving into the kind of themes around the main character? And, you know, here that is regional towns and violence against women. Uh, Really very little. 
Very little. What I'm really exploring is what's going on for that particular character that I'm following. And what emerges out of that is a kind of organic process, I suppose. And the other thing that I'm looking at is is uh, the place that the character lives in and what rises out of place. And for me, so often, character responds to place, it rise, character rises out of place, plot comes out of those things, the connection between those two things. And at the end of the book, when I look at it, and, you know, I mean, it's quite odd for me sometimes if I get the publisher's notes and, and they say, you seem to be exploring this and, you know, here are the notes, what do, what, can you write a little bit about this? And I think, oh, have I been looking at patriarchy? Have I? Have I? Okay, all right, let me see. What do I think about patriarchy? So it is a very opposite process. It is what's your book and now what's your book about? And that's when I find out what the book's about. The one thing that I was really interested in exploring, and this is very much in response to things that Evelyn Araluen has talked about, is the erasure, what she calls the erasure in Australian literature of Aboriginal presence and possession of sovereign ancestral countries. And I was extremely keen to have that as a presence in the book in this particular part of South Australia because of the kind of almost complete erasure that is now just being reversed a little bit. Um, yeah, so that was the most conscious part of the writing. I do have a question about that, actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Lucy, you don't need to apologise. Around till as she becomes more part of the community, it's almost like an ensemble cast um, kind of appears around her and becomes more and more part of the action and more and more part of her experience. And one of those characters is a woman called Tundra. Uh, she is a First Nations woman and she, you know, employs Till and becomes a, a welcoming figure and welcoming presence in Till's life. They have several really quite meaningful conversations and we hear the internal monologue of Till kind of reflecting that she's a younger white woman and she probably knows that she's missing out or not understanding uh, a lot of what is happening around her or being told to her. And I guess you, Lucy, as the writer, how did you go about this? I mean, you just mentioned Evelyn Araluen and mm. being determined to not participate in the erasure of First Nations people from contemporary literature. But how did you approach that? and do it respectfully? From very early on, spent a long time trying to find a person from the Nadjeri nation who I could talk to about, about how I could approach some of this. And in the beginning, I didn't have that character, uh, uh, the character as a, as a First Nations person, only that she seemed to keep emerging as a First Nations person, the possibilities of that. But I'm very aware of the politics around this. So I kept on writing off to people, ringing people, asking for these, asking for connections, contacts. And finally, about um, two years into it, a very helpful organisation, there's a really great language group in South Australia, said, oh, maybe you could try this person. And, and I did. And she was great and very, very interested in the whole process. And so I went and met her several times in South Australia and talked and she told me quite a lot of information, stories and things that I, I wouldn't use in the writing. But I would leave those meetings, write up everything she'd said and send these notes to her. And then I would, and she would say, yes, yeah, you know, or, you know, not, not this. And then I would fictionalise a lot of this material and sent back all of the parts that related to this character for her. And um, it was 
this incredibly rich um, collaborative process creating this character. I've never had anything like it and I loved it and she liked it as well. And we're now um, planning to work on um, her oral history together. She's got uh, this massive material. It's very kind of exciting to me. It's probably the most exciting part of the whole project. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, no, it was great, that whole thing. I put a little note at the end about it in the final version of the book so people can see what that process was. Yeah, I recommend it, but I know it is really difficult to to find the appropriate person, a person who sees any need for it. Uh, and I completely understand the resistance to it as well. It's a very delicate matter, but it did work out in this case. Yeah, I'm so grateful. I'd like to also talk to you about place. Much of the action occurs in a small regional town in Warari. Is that a real town or how did you use your experience to create such a town? Warawi is pretty closely based on a town called Tarawi which is two or three hours out of Adelaide, I suppose, to the north, due north. And uh, I only came across it by accident one day. I was just driving around and I believe strongly in the Rebecca Solnit idea of getting lost to find the thing that you don't know what you're looking for. I do that a lot and, you know, I would be intolerable travelling with me on a research trip because of my double backing. And I just drove into this town and honestly if a tumbleweed had rolled up the street I wouldn't have been surprised there was not a car on the street not even parked on the side of the road over the course of four or five research trips there I saw a total of four people there are ruins everywhere these exquisite late 19th century shop fronts that are all kind of falling apart it's a genuine ghost town. It's the most fascinating resonant place. So I I did that. I walked around this town many times. I took photographs. I took footage of it. I wrote notes while I was there. What I'm trying to do, which is not wildly unlike the COVID thing, is document the thing that I'm looking at. So there's that kind of documentary phase. What is it that I'm seeing? What am I feeling? What's going on in this town? And then when I went back to Melbourne, writing that. So I guess in a way it is this, um, Annie Eno talks about transfiguring reality. And I think there is this process in writing when you're doing research that you're transfiguring that reality into this fictional form of that reality. Yeah, I love all of that, all of that that landscapey stuff, uh, the town, the world building, how, how that happens. Your world building is beautiful. I'm going to probably take the tone down a little bit. And you just referred to the COVID thing. I would like to... <laughs> talk about the COVID thing just for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, to be clear to those listening, this is not a COVID novel. However, there are scenes that, you know, take place uh, during the lockdowns. And, you know, in my reading, I am beginning to see books published in Australia, works of fiction that reference that time. And sometimes it's very light on, you know, a reference to masks or a reference to those times we were in lockdown. This has extended scenes during that period. Some wonderfully happy, some very much not. I guess you mentioned the documentary element, but I've heard a lot of people say in the industry, oh, no one wants to read anything to do with COVID, leave it out. Did you get that from your editors or publishers? And what was your drive to include it in parts? It is a really difficult thing to approach and I had read the same things while I was writing this this disinclination for publishers to to approach that, this constant reports about how everyone wants to read upbeat material, we're all looking for dressing gown books and I don't really want those books myself but I'm obviously an exception. 
But I must say that the publishers, and this this is very Pan Macmillan, they want to support the book that the author wants to write. Um, and I am so, so grateful for that. But I also had to, for myself, kind of interrogate what it was that I wanted to have it in there for. And if it were just for documentary purposes, I don't think that's enough for it to justify its spot in a book. And so to an extent, that material was trimmed back a little bit to heighten the kind of psychological effect that I was aiming for with it. And, uh, and it was principally that, this, this feeling of um, Till's claustrophobia that was partly related to lockdown, but also about this kind of intensely, this kind of dreadful haunting feeling that she has about the loss of her childhood friend and the way I used lockdown and particularly the way she walked around the, the lanes of the inner north of Melbourne um, as a way of kind of, it's a metaphor for that psychological compression that she feels. And that's that was the more important component of, of COVID times and to reveal something of her relationship with her parents as well, I suppose. Lucy, I have a final question for you and it's perhaps an odd one and yet it is something I find myself deeply wanting to ask you. Till has a dog companion, a greyhound called Birdie. I got so scared at various points thinking you're going to kill off Birdie. Um, <laughs> the dog is okay, everybody. Uh, that's not a spoiler, but the dog is okay. Um, but it's a beautiful relationship. And in many ways, you know, Birdie is her best friend and constant companion. And I am interested in kind of the relationships between humans and other species. And I have had a beautiful discussion with Bronnie Doyle about this. Mm, and how she uses, I love her book. Yeah, how she yes, uses... Right. Um, uh, dogs as companions in her yeah. work and I, I wanted to kind of interrogate that with you as well mm -hmm. I mean there are a couple of things about having a dog in a book and this is about a woman young woman who because of COVID and because she's traveling on her own and living on her own for quite a while until she makes connections with this new place that she lives there is something about a dog that gives a point of interaction and breaks up that kind of constant uh, interior monologue, that that quality of interiority, which gets a bit claustrophobic on its own. own. So it gives her some, that something to talk to. But I think the other thing about dogs is there is a lack of judgment from dogs that makes them particularly useful for Till, who, who is judging herself absolutely constantly. But she has this dog who never judges her, who's just, you know, listens to her fretting about various things and, you know, is her companion. I find the, the I, anyway, I don't really know what to say about dogs. I have dogs. I adore my dogs. They are not children. They are a parallel species that my family's always lived with. And so for me, if there is no dog around or, you know, and I'm sure it's the same for people with cats, I just think, but where is that um, register of your life? And one of my sons um, said to me one day, he, he loves going around to a friend's place, but he said, it's really weird. They have no animals. <laughs> I've, I've said to myself, I'm not going to have a dog in the next book, but I find it quite troubling, the thought of it. I, <laughs> how do you live a life without a dog and, and or an animal and the things that they give you in your life? That is such a wonderful question for us all to ask, Lucy. Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations again on your latest work, Days of Innocence and Wonder. It is a wonderful read. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. The Garrett is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Subscribe to The Garrett on all good podcast apps and read the transcripts of our interviews at thegarrettpodcast.com.